rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Once again, if you are just joining with us this morning, we're walking through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we are in the first five verses. We'll be in those first five verses this week and next week before we move on. I think very important verses, very practical verses. Or if you'll remember, Paul is giving four results of justification. That's really what largely the book of Romans is about, how one can be justified, declared righteous before God. And we hold, says Paul in chapter 3, verse 28, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So he walked all the way through that, end of chapter 3, all the way through in chapter 4. And now in chapter 5, he's giving us the results of justification. Let's read these first five verses, and then we'll do a little bit of review. And I want to add a couple of things to where we were last week before we move on to a new point this week. Paul says, Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's just pause now and ask God to bless his word preached. Father, we've come now to that point in our worship of you that you have commanded where your word is taught and exhorted from and um, preached. And I pray that you would help me And gift me now to do that for the benefit of your people who I know, God, the majority here love your word, love to learn about it, love to be encouraged by it. And we know that you, God, love to encourage your people by your word. And so I ask that you would do that this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Four results of justification. That's really the main idea of these first five verses. So you're justified, you're declared righteous by faith, and then what Paul is bringing out are four results of that. And remember, these are only for justified people. So these four things are for no one else. So if, they, if they're not in Christ and they're not trusting in him, these don't apply to them. It is only once somebody comes to faith in Christ that these things now apply to their lives. We've gone through thoroughly the first two, and there's something we have. Remember he says in chapter 5, verse 1, we have, since we have been justified by faith, we have, here's the first one, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's relational peace now. You're right with God. You're no longer at enmity with God because of your sin. Through Jesus Christ now, you have peace with him. 
And the second one, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access to God and with God by faith into this grace in which we stand. So you're standing now before God is in that, remember that perfect grace that began when you trusted Christ and carries you all the way through to the end. That's your standing before God. You have this access through Jesus to Him. And both of these things we have and they are independent of how we feel today. Doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you feel like you have peace with God today or if you feel like you're standing under grace. That's really irrelevant. These are just statements of fact, things that are true about you if you're in Christ, you see. Thank goodness for that because our feelings are so fluctuating, right? That's why we need to know these things so that we combat those Negative feelings. And it doesn't matter even how you did this week in your spiritual walk. Whether you were faithful to the spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible and prayer or whether you had any affections for God or any of those things that you should, yeah, we want those things and we should be doing those things, but it doesn't affect that at all. See, none of this, none of this standing with God, none of this peace with God has any bearing on what we did. It wasn't that way from the beginning because it was all by grace, right? Through faith alone. And it carries the way through. Those are wonderful truths. And last week we learned now what we do. What do Christians do then as a result of justification? And there were two things here that he uh, mentions. The first one was in verse two as we began to look at that. We rejoice now in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Those two things we do. The first two, you phrase it as something you have. Now these are two things that you just find among Christian people. In a room like this, you're gonna find people rejoicing in hope of the glory of God and you're gonna find people rejoicing in our sufferings. Remember what it was to rejoice? A word is a very confident word. It's actually translated in other places in the New Testament as boasting, sometimes even negative, like boasting in yourself or boasting in your gifts or accomplishments. That's a very confident word. And you add that to the word hope, which is, we defined it as confident expectation of future good, not some wishful thinking, confident expectation of future good. So we're rejoicing, we're boasting in our confident expectation of future good. And what is that confident expectation of future good? It is the glory of God. It is a time that we will be glorified ourselves and made as we should be and the world itself will be glorified. It's what God is going to do to bring all things together in Christ, make all things as they are to be. It is the removal of all sin and all its effects and all suffering in this world. That's the glory that we are rejoicing in right now and we're confidently expecting it and awaiting it. No wonder when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray every day, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. 
We're actually taught by Jesus to be praying in glory every day. We want it to arrive. We want to be glorified. We want the creation to be as glorified, Romans 8, as he's talking about the revealing of the sons of glory. These are things we looked at last week and they're wonderful truths. Wherever you find justified people, Paul says, you'll find people glorying in their hope of glory. You know, Sundays are referred to as the Lord's Day. I really feel like it should be, it should get out of our idea that Sunday is part of the weekend. Actually, Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the week beginning. And the way Christian people have for 2,000 years began the week on the Lord's Day, which is the day he claimed when he was raised from the dead on that day, and so becomes this Lord's Day, and the way we have observed the Lord's Day for 2,000 years is to gather in congregations just like this and worship. And one of the things we're doing every Sunday is we are rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. One of the elements of every service contains somewhere this looking forward to, right? Looking forward to the time when Christ will return. Looking forward to glory. And there's an expectation of it and a, a longing for it. This is the time of the week when we can, as we looked at last week from Colossians 3, 1 to 4, uh, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is why I say when you come to the service, do everything you can to get distractions of this world out of your mind. For some of you, take your phone and put it on, turn it off or put it on whatever mode it is where you're not getting communication and you can't check it. If you use an iPad for your Bible, that's fine. Make sure you're not getting anything that's gonna pop up and distract you. This is such a gift. In a busy, hectic schedule we all have every week, filled with distractions, to have a time set apart that we can rejoice and hope of the glory of God, get our minds set on heavenly things as a reset for the rest of the week. It was a really good idea when God established it, wasn't it? I've said it before. It wasn't like the apostles said, hey, I got an idea, guys. Let's get together on Sundays and worship. No, this is what has been instituted for us, given to us as a gift to get our minds Right sometimes. Because throughout the week, all of our minds, mine included, can get so wrong. It can just, it derails so quickly into the things of this world and life. What a gift it is to get together, sing songs like this, of this confident expectation. Uh, Come thou fount of every blessing. The two lines in there, we sing this song. Oh, that day when freed from sinning. I shall see thy lovely face. 
full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. That day when freed from sinning, friends, that's glorification. I hope for you, one of the, one of the things that you're longing for is to be freed from sinning. Do you view sin like that? We'll talk a lot about this when we get into Romans 7. But it's this indwelling sin that ruins everything. Even still now, it's a joy robber and a peace robber. And in glorification, the greatest, to me, the, the, one of the greatest aspects of it is that I'm going to be free from sin to enjoy the fullness of the glory of God. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. There it is, right? Rejoicing in hope of the glory of God and is very confident, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. That's boasting in hope of the glory of God, and it's the privilege of what we get to do in our worship services. Do you know how the Bible ends? I mean, I mean literally, the last two verses of the Bible end with this hope. Okay? Last two verses of the Bible and the providence of God. Last two verses written were by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. And as soon as these two, as soon as he was done writing these two verses, God stopped Speaking directly except through his word now. And the scriptures were completed. So what does God want? Ringing in the ears of his people. Every time Christians have had the opportunity to read Bibles and get to Revelation in the last chapter, in the last two verses, this is what it is. Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says... Surely I am coming soon. That's in quotes, right? Who's saying that? Jesus is saying that. Surely I am coming soon. Now look at the response immediately to that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. There it is. It's the longing of the heart for the return of Christ. And you even have then in verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all until then. Amen. Keeping you, guarding you all the way through, you see. This is our confident expectation. This is what we are to be looking for, praying for, the time when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. So, there is an element to the Christian life in which we uniquely, and I mean uniquely by, by this, nobody else is thinking this way. Only Christian people think this way. And we are uniquely living, not exclusively for the here and now, but for that time to come. So our lives are ordered out and directed in large measure for that time to come. It makes, them, it makes our lives look differently and have a different flavor to them 
because we're setting, storing up our treasures in heaven, you see. We're looking forward to that time. We're living like Abraham as we looked at last week in Hebrews 11. Not in houses, but in tents. Temporarily, so to speak, here in this land as pilgrims and strangers, okay? But, what Paul does, and I'm going to transition here. Paul was also a realist. He was a real human being who lived in this real fallen world and he himself was a fallen man among fallen men. And so he understood that we live for the time to come but we also live in the time that is. And as fallen and frail human beings in a sin-cursed world, he knew by personal experience that in this world, Christian people would experience trials, testings, temptations, sorrows, pain, sickness, persecution, and even one day death. For themselves, all of these things, for their loved ones, those they know, all of these things, this is it. And he would summarize all of it with one word here in Romans 5, and it's the word suffering. Paul was a man who experienced intense suffering throughout his life. If time allows, we'll look at one of those accounts in, uh, towards the end of the service. Matter of fact, he was the only apostle that the Lord said, essentially, something to the effect of, uh, he has been chosen out to suffer a lot for my name's sake. His life was uniquely garbed in suffering, which makes him a great counselor for the sufferers. Nobody in the church of Rome, when he starts talking about suffering, or when he says, we rejoice, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And nobody could actually look at Paul and say, Paul, you don't, you don't have any idea what I'm going through. The Lord designed it in such a way that really all of his apostles understood exactly what suffering was and what it was to suffer. So he could write to suffering people and help them. The Christian's normal and right response to suffering is what Paul now lists here. He says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And that is, to the world, a very strange statement, isn't it? It's a very strange statement. Unless you're a Christian who has the knowledge of why we rejoice in our sufferings. That's what Paul's going to go into here. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So on one side of the coin, if we had a coin here on one side, we're rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. That's future and on the other side of that same coin, we're rejoicing now, even in our sufferings, in this present time. 
This word suffering is interesting, and I just want to talk about it for a moment, what he chose to use here for his word for suffering. It's actually translated in other places in the New Testament as the word tribulation. Um, that word can be a little misleading depending on what your end times views are. You may be just thinking about this period of time, this great tribulation that we have coming at us, but that's not the normal use of the word. The word is great in this context because it originally just had reference to squeezing something. So you would take grapes, you'd take some kind of fruit, you'd squeeze it to get the juice out to make whatever you're going to make out of that. That's where, but it developed into this idea that uh, it describes the circumstances of our lives that cause distress and pressure and suffering and oppression. And I think it's a perfect word to describe what we talk about with trials and suffering because when you're in the midst of it, you feel that weight and that pressure, don't you? It's a squeezing, if you will. And the greater the trial, or the greater your view of the trial, the greater that pressure comes upon you, that weight is weighing on you, you see. Do you have any circumstances in your life that you could think about this morning that would be characterized by that? I think all of us could think of things in our lives that are occasions that are causing distress, pressure, suffering in our lives. Remember Graham said a couple weeks ago when he talked about suffering, not to diminish or downplay any suffering you have in your life, that essentially he quoted somebody and their definition of it was anything that you're going through that you wish would come to an end. And it can be anywhere on that scale, like even if you go to the doctor now and they have that scale of all the faces on there and they want to know where your pain level is at and you got the guy smiling or laughing all the way to the crying and where, is you, where are you on this scale? These circumstances could be anywhere on there. and We walk through them all. It'd be helpful for you to think this week and next week about situations like that in your life so that you can take the word of God and apply it directly to it. So even as you're experiencing it or you're walking through it with other people, these words are just rattling around in your minds. We boast in our sufferings knowing, and we'll get more into this next part next week, but let me just read it right now. We know something of what God is doing with this suffering that lets us in on the fact that we should be rejoicing in it. It's knowledge. But again, this part we'll get into more next week, but let me just read it. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. What we're given here is information that we need, this knowledge that we need to rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our sovereign God who loves us has designed this for us to do wonderful things in our lives, to grow us in Christ's likeness and bring us into glory to actually produce more hope in us. 
That's one thing that suffering does. It, it ends up producing more hope because I think the more you suffer, the more you long for the coming of Jesus Christ in the glory to come. But for this week, just notice this. It's enough to notice this. According to Paul, and as we'll see, a number of other New Testament writers, suffering is assumed as a common and normal part of the Christian life. That justified people are supposed to be suffering. And nothing unusual is happening to them when they're suffering. The New Testament makes it clear, abundantly clear, and we'll look at some of these. Coming to Christ in faith does not fix your life. Doesn't make everything the way you'd wished it would be. Doesn't make everything great. As a matter of fact, the indications, as we'll see of Scripture, is that coming to Christ can actually intensify suffering in various ways, namely persecution. But coming to Christ does not fix your life in any variation of that, any, any variation of that message that says, no, it is it's in God's will for you to suffer. It's always God's will to heal his people. It's always God's will for you to have plenty of money in the bank account. It's always God's will for you to get that next promotion and to be successful. That's false teaching. That's wrong. That comes from the devil. And all it's doing is encouraging people to come to God to fix their problems. You know, I'm not totally going to bash Christian movies right now, but like, there's a genre of Christian movies out there, and you know the story, right? Before you even go, you could tell the story. The guy's having tons of problems. Family's falling apart. Everything's going wrong, but he turns to God. And what happens when he turns to God? Everything ends out in the end. So the final scene is him dancing around with his family in the living room, and everybody's great, and everybody's grand, and That's just not reality. That's just a Christianized version of Hollywood because that's not always what happens. What is assumed in passages like Romans chapter five is suffering, being a normal part of the Christian experience. And I think it's so, the reason I'm parking on this, this is all part of the knowledge we need to have to walk through suffering. And much of what we're doing, we're either we're either in the midst of suffering or we're getting ready to go through it. That's kind of life, isn't it? Life is you're either in it or you're about to go in it or you're walking through it with someone else. And it's a series of different types of trials. That's why we read earlier in James 1. It is various trials that we encounter throughout our life. This is it, okay? And we have to be armed with the right knowledge prior to going into it. We don't want to get caught off guard going into it. We want to know that this is the way it's supposed to be before we enter into the trial. And if we don't understand that this is supposed to be happening, one thing we may seek to do then as it's happening, 
and then the trial can't have the effect that God intends for it, is we'll seek to escape it somehow. And oftentimes that's by unlawful means. And by that I mean we're feeling the pressure of trials and we're feeling the weightiness of it, so we turn to alcohol. Because when you drink enough alcohol, you feel better. And for those moments or hours, you can escape the feeling of that trial. Or it could be many other things that people turn to in their times of suffering and trial. And what God wants us to do is learn to endure it. That's why trials produce the ability to uphold. But even to do that, we have to understand that this is the way it is supposed to be. Justification clearly then does not bring freedom from suffering. And anybody who would teach that is teaching a wrong kind of justification. Nowhere in the Bible, as a matter of fact, is the believer promised a carefree life. Nowhere in the Bible is the believer promised a happy life or a life free of troubling circumstances. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that it's God's will for his people to always be healthy and wealthy. We have to know this because when we suffer, and if we're God's children, the devil can wreak havoc with that, asking you questions like this. Where is your God right now? God loves you. Why is this happening to you? Well, you must not be at peace with God because I think people at peace with God would not be experiencing this. Where is God? Or maybe we won't see his grace, the grace in which we stand. It's hard to see the sunshine of the grace of God when it's cloudy outside. We need to know these things ahead of time. Do You know, in Jesus' last night before the cross, he gathered his disciples into that upper room, and you can read all about this in John 13 through 17, and in that content, what he's doing is preparing them for the time he's going to be away from them, uh, at least bodily, and he's going to be with the Father, and they were going to be here accomplishing his work. So he's preparing them for that. You know, the num- I think the number one theme of that entire discourse in those chapters was preparing them for the suffering that was coming. He did not want them to be taken aback. And he concludes it all right before John 17 where it's that high priestly prayer. Right before he prays and then they go into the garden, he says these words, John 16 verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That word tribulation here is the same word from Romans chapter 5 that we're translating suffering. Same underlying Greek word. Jesus promised his disciples peace from him, in him, yes. But in this world, this is what you must expect. This is what you must know it's going to be like so that you're not taken by surprise. When you are suffering through something, it is incredibly important to know that what is happening to you is not unusual. It is not something strange. It is part of the normal Christian experience, and it's for your good. I think in two weeks we'll talk about verses 6 through 11, which are all about the cross and the love of God demonstrated 
in Jesus going to the cross to bear, for our, bear the payment for our sins. And that's so important to understand even in the context of suffering because oftentimes we think we're being punished. So maybe in our minds things are going wrong and we're thinking in our minds, what did I do? What did I do that I'm being punished right now for that? That's not gospel orientation either, is it? Because the simple fact of the matter is all of your sins were punished in Christ. And now God's disposition to you, remember, is grace and love, working things together for your eternal good in his glory. And it's all springing out of what Christ has done at the cross, making it so that we have peace with God and access to him in this grace in which we stand. Peter, writing to a group of suffering Christians himself, wrote this in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Fiery trial, very vague. They were undergoing, I think, a lot of suffering and persecution, but very vague, vague enough so that you can apply it to your life. Fiery trial, which means it's painful. It's a lot of heat. And this fiery trial has come upon you now. And he says, don't be surprised by that. And don't start thinking, wow, this is strange. I didn't think it was supposed to be like this when I became a Christian. Well, he's making it very clear this is exactly what's supposed to be happening. And then in chapter 5 of this same letter, he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Because sometimes suffering is lonely, it's isolating. And what Paul, Peter's like, no, 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 no. These same kinds of sufferings are and have been a being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It isn't just uniquely you now and somehow God has you in his sights and is really letting you have it. This goes part and parcel with being a Christian and everyone is experiencing various types of suffering. It's the normal part of the Christian experience. It's the common part of the Christian experience. It's one thing we all share in common, isn't it? We share in common the fact that we are a suffering people. You'll find this kind of teaching all through the early church and the apostles' preaching. And I'll bring one example to your attention in Acts chapter 14. And here you have Paul and Silas, and it says in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iaconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. That's interesting. Now, why would they be tempted to abandon the faith? Well, the answer to that question is because they are experiencing tribulations. And so the temptation arises to bail on this whole thing. But they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith, and saying, listen, that through many tribulations, same word as Romans 5, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it is necessary for us if we're going to get into the kingdom of God The path to the kingdom of God, the path to glory, is a path of suffering. 
It's necessary. This is what they had to teach the early church from the beginning so that there was no confusion. This is why Jesus said to his disciples in that upper room in John 15, he said, I've said these things to you so that when they happen, it's keeping you from falling away so that you're not getting confused and bailing on the faith. This is essential that we walk through these things. Friends, it was true of Jesus and it's true of us. The path to glory for Jesus was a path of suffering. It was a unique suffering in the sense that he suffered as the uh, perfect God-man in this life, in that sense. And it was unique in the sense that his was a saving suffering. In other words, when he went to the cross and that pinnacle of his suffering, though it wasn't the exclusive portion of his suffering as a human being in this world, but the pinnacle of his suffering was on the cross and that he was doing for our sins. Now, our suffering is not atoning for our sins in any way. It's not paying back God for our sins. It's not burning off our sins. It's not doing any of those things. That was completed in the cross of Christ. But his path to glory was a path of suffering. And what the Bible says is that then those who follow Christ should expect the same path. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you see why it's so important? Pause. Can you see why it's so important to begin with the boasting in hope of the glory of God? Because he puts out the glory of God before us. That joy set before us. And when you're in glory and when you see Christ, you will experience the fullness of joy beyond your wildest imagination right now. Unending joy. At thy right hand, the psalmist said, there is everlasting joy and pleasures forevermore. That's the joy set before us and God gives us enough glimpses of it now in the scripture to keep us running the race with endurance while we look to Jesus who did the same thing. The joy that was set before him in glory and the the receiving of his church in glory As he looked to that, he endured then the suffering for us. And it's the same path for Christians. We follow him on a path of suffering to get to the glory. This is the path to the glory of God. You know, it's so important to teach people about this. I remember in the, I ministered in the jail in Illinois for a couple of years before we came here. And one thing that you had to watch out for when you, were, when you were working with men who were in a lot of trouble, facing jail is temporary, they're facing possible prison sentences as they're going through their, um, their trial uh, and such. You had to guard against them wanting to come to Jesus to fix this mess. I'll never forget the guy that had a praise at the end. We take prayer requests. One of them had a praise. Um, the DA had 
lost his evidence, uh, evidence against him. So he was all praising God for this. Well, he was a little confused. And the reason you had to guard against this is because you can't, God does not want to be sought simply for what he'll do for you and how he'll fix your life circumstances. And if you teach people they'll do that, they'll fall away as soon as it gets hard. This is exactly what Jesus taught about the parable of the sowers. And he says in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, he says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And listen, when tribulation, that's our word back there, suffering, or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is not what I signed up for. I signed up for the God who would make all things right. It's so important to warn Christian people that suffering is the normal and common experience to us all. The justification doesn't result in a removal yet of all suffering that is to come in the future. Now, here's how I want to close this this week and my voice is about to give out. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 16 what might an example what might an example of rejoicing in sufferings look like and here again we'll look at the apostle paul in philippi and from a human perspective as he's doing things in philippi things go awry for him Let's begin in verse 16 for the context. So Acts 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl, had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out that very hour but when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers now pause right just get the, get the scene in your mind picture this angry mob Paul and Silas being taken by force here and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, you put them into the inner prison and fasten their feet in the stocks. Now pause right there and ask yourself, so as a human being, you're watching this account of these two human beings, Paul and Silas, and I don't know if you've ever had the great privilege of having an angry mob beat you with rods until, you know, you're bloody and bruised or whatever else you're experiencing during that time, and then being thrown unjustly into this jail, and these Fasten their feet in the stocks. This is interesting because archaeologists found what these actually were. So they were like these comb-looking bars, OK? 
okay? So they're combs, so they had teeth in there. And so you could set multiple prisoners in one, and they would clamp, clamp it down, and your legs would go in between the teeth of the combs, and they would fasten it down tight enough so that you could not move, applying intense pressure on your legs so that you couldn't wiggle out, you can't move, sleep was impossible, there was no resting or shifting position, you just sat there in this brutal position. It was used to keep the worst prisoners uh, safely confined so that they couldn't escape, but also was designed to inflict torture and suffering. This, this is what they did. So picture this, you're Paul and Silas going about doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're preaching the gospel. And you find yourself beaten and bloody and a mess on the cell floor and you're pinned to the ground. You have no idea how this is gonna pan out. What would you do? What would be your response, okay, in that moment of intensive suffering. Look at this, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas started a worship service. in immense pain, in immense suffering, being treated unjustly, unrighteously, and unfairly. And they're worshiping God. They are rejoicing in their sufferings, aren't they? It's an example of what it is, what Christian people do, the norm The church father, Tertullian, said, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. And friends, Peter said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. And remember now, he wrote that to suffering Christians. And they're going to wonder why here you are for preaching about Jesus, You're, you've been beaten and you've been pinned into the stocks and you don't know how this is going to... Why are you rejoicing and praising God? And Peter said, be ready to give a reason for that hope. The hope we rejoice in. The hope of the glory of God to come. Friends, this is the... Paul presents these things as the regular and right and normal response to suffering. Now, let me close by saying this. Suffering is um, brutally hard and challenging. And we as fallen people do not always respond the way we should. None of us in this room respond to suffering always in the way that we should. But what these texts do for us, do you see what they do? They prepare us or they remind us when we're in the suffering of what God wants from us. So that the proper response even right now to this, to this text is to say, 
Father, I know me. And I know oftentimes over and over again I have failed the test of rejoicing in suffering. But please work within me that grace that comes from you to rejoice in what I know you're doing providentially and sovereignly in these circumstances in my life. We go to God for what we know we cannot create within ourselves and then watch him do it. And maybe one day you're going to be surprised. You're going to be in a situation where there's, from a human perspective, there should be no joy and you're going to be singing. Maybe some of you, you've experienced this already. You're suffering in some way and all of a sudden you're praising God. Where does that come from? Does that come from you? Did you just work that in yourself? Is that something culture trained you or your parents taught you to do? That comes from God working his grace in you. And just as we read earlier in James 1, that trial of your faith, now it's being proven. Look at the genuineness of your faith as you still are praising God in this circumstance. We know that if we ask the things that are God's will of ourselves, he will answer them. So let's now just ask God to enable us to have the grace of rejoicing in our sufferings. Father, we thank you that you have given us so much instruction in your word. What more can you say than to us you have said? We know even why we suffer. We know what you're doing, and I pray that you would help it be in our minds and more than that, in our hearts. Work in us, each one of us, the good intended and mercifully, God, and graciously as you guide us through the circumstances you you choose to walk us through. We just pray that we would experience more and more of your loving presence and care and transformation into Christ's likeness. We ask this in his name. Amen.